All right. The reading of our text will be in the book of Daniel. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be a paperback Bible in the pew back in front of you. And if you don't know where the book of Daniel is, you can use the index, or if it's that blue paperback Bible, it's page 821. Help you out there a little bit. Daniel, we will be in the first chapter, and I'll just be reading the first two verses. When you get to the book of Daniel, chapter 1, say, He is Lord of it all. All right. Upon the conclusion of the reading of the text, I will say this is the word of the Lord, and you can respond with thanks be to God. Please follow along and have your eyes on the text as I'm reading it this morning. Daniel chapter 1, verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. This is the word of the Lord. Please direct your attention to the screen. I should run out of a tunnel after that thing or something, man. That's pretty epic. But it's an epic intro to an epic book. And so we start a, a new book of the Bible today, um, Daniel. And can we just give it up for our stage crew and their design and everything, man? It's very epic looking. And, and, and listen, here's the reason why we do this is because we love the Word of God here at Westside. And so if we love the Word of God, we're going to propagate that. We're going to make the Word of God exciting because we're competing with like the Avengers and stuff like that. You know what I mean? But the Word of God is alive and it's active. And so we're extremely excited about that. Just a few quick uh, announcements. I don't know if you realize this or not, but the second song that we sang today um, was actually written by Pastor Tyler and our worship team. And for this entire series of Daniel, they have released a worship album. And so can we make some noise that Westside has got like a worship album out there? Like nuts, man. It's crazy. And so you can actually check that out on our website. Here's what we want you to do. We want you to be immersed in this, man. We want you to be immersed in the word of God. And here's what I love about our worship team. Do you know how they wrote it? They didn't sit sit around and twiddle their thumbs and go, ooh, kumbaya, that sounds great. They had their Bibles open. They have their Bibles open and notebooks, and the lyrics of these songs come from the Word of God. And so you can check that out on our website. You can go and download that. We're not charging anything, but there's a donation. You can give what you feel that's worth. And then if you're still living in the Stone Age and you can't stream one of those, we have a limited number of hard copies for you that we can give to you as well. So we're excited about that. Next weekend, we've got a very special surprise for you. I'm not going to tell you what it is because it's a very special surprise. So you need to show up, and I'm extremely excited about this as well. But as we start the book of Daniel, how do you start an epic book of the Bible, Old Testament book? Maybe this will be helpful. Some of you might recognize a picture of this young lady. You probably learned about her in school when you were learning world history. This is a picture of Anne Frank. Anne Frank was born and lived over in the Netherlands. And just before Anne Frank's 13th birthday, she received this red journal. Anne Frank had a desire to grow up and to be a writer. Um, She wrote poems as young as 10 years old. 
but also Anne Frank lived during a very um, sketchy time in world history as there was a German empire that was set to literally rule the world known as the Nazi regime uh, led by Adolf Hitler. And a little bit after she turned 13, as the Germans made their way into the Netherlands, Anne Frank and her family were forced to literally live in an attic for two years. And day after day, they would hear knocks on the door. They would get um, updates as they would know that some Nazis had come in and taken family away to prison camps. And uh, just a little bit after she turned 13, they were there for two years. She wrote in her diary every single day. And sometimes she would find scrap pieces of paper or even cloth and put that into the diary. Scholars and theologians say that Anne Frank's diary is literally priceless because what it did is it documented the world war at that time in the region of the Netherlands. And so she literally had a, a historical account of what was taking place. Um, this is to go to show you how literally priceless her writings are. There was a poem on a half sheet of paper that she wrote when she was about 10 years old, and it went up for auction. And it sold for $148,000. And so people say that literally Anne Frank, the diary of Anne Frank, is priceless. And why do I tell you that? I tell you that because the book you hold in your hand is much more priceless than that. And as we get into the book of Daniel, we understand that there's a lot of similarities there. We have memoirs written of a man and of a people who were literally taken away of exile, that there was another empire that came in and besieged their land and took their own people captive. And as we look in the first six chapters of Daniel, we're going to learn what it is to live in exile. But before we do that, we've got to learn about this book, right? God forbid we come to church and learn about the Bible. That would just be mind-blowing, right? So you've got a little outline there in your bulletin for this to help you with study, okay? So first off, we start with the author who wrote it. Anybody going to take a guess at that? Daniel. Great. Awesome. (laughs) Terrific. In chapter 8, verse 15, Daniel records, I, Daniel, received this vision. So obviously, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Daniel is the one who authors this book. The date, there's a lot of debate about this. We'll get into that in just a minute. Around 6th century B.C. Why is it important for you to understand that? Because we say this often. The Bible was not written to you, but it's written for you. Now, what does that mean? Now, the reason why we have a throne and epic things up here, this is an ancient book, man. This is about ancient kingdoms, and you're going to get into some weird stuff. It's because it was written in the Middle East six centuries ago. So there's going to be some things that are going to be difficult, but we need to understand the context of that as well. What's the location? Where's Daniel writing this at? He's writing this in Babylon. Here's what's interesting about this. Even outside from the Bible, we know about Babylon, right? You maybe grew up in high school or in college and learned about the hanging gardens of Babylon. What I love about that is it just gives another more historical credence to the Bible. The Bible's not written in a vacuum. It didn't just drop out of the sky. It's not removed from world history and context, but rather this is the history of the people of God that's happening in space and time. In modern-day Babylon was over in what's, I'm sorry, Babylon was in what's known as modern-day Iraq today. And so that's what the Babylonian empire looked like during the time of Daniel. 
And why is this important to know? Because during this time, there was not an empire on the earth that could touch Babylon. I mean, I can't stress that enough. These guys had technology. They had education. They had a language that to this day we still can't crack. And so these guys were as technologically advanced as anybody had ever seen anything. But what's the genre of Scripture? The genre. Well, we're looking at Old Testament history and Old Testament prophecy. Now, why do I tell you that? Because we have to learn about the Bible. The Bible is one book that consists of 66 other books written by some 40 different authors over a slew of continents and in three different languages. That's important to understand when you approach a book of the Bible. Because when we come to the Psalms, the psalmist says things like, God holds the whole world in his hand. Now, if we zoomed out and went into space, are we going to see God's hand holding the whole world? What's he? Poetry. He's using poetry there. So Daniel's going to get into some things and use some language that we have to decipher and understand. But here's another thing why I love the Bible. There has not been a book that has been more contested, tried to be more disproved than the book that you hold in your hand. And starting about the late 50s, early 60s, we started to get educated and guys with more degrees in Fahrenheit started to try to challenge the authenticity of the book of the Bible. And C.S. Lewis says, we have what we call chronological snobbery, where we think, oh, now we're so advanced that we look back on the people and go, boy, they didn't really get it. Rather than understanding the early church fathers and the early uh, Christian history loved and accepted the book of Daniel, but modern Christian scholarship, which is also kind of like grape nuts, right? It's not grape and it ain't nuts, okay? You know what I mean? They come and contest the authenticity of the book of the Bible. One scholar says this, According to the consensus of modern critical scholarship, the stories about Daniel and his friends are legendary in character. And the hero himself most probably never existed. Okay, cool. I can tell you what I did with that commentary later. But here's what I think of that. This. Now, here's why I tell you this. Yes, we use outside resources to prop this book. Like I said, there's history. We can understand this. We know this. We look at the early church fathers. We look at the history. We look at the context of all of that. But before we do any of that, we let Scripture interpret Scripture. What does the Bible say about the Bible? It's why we're not a cult, okay? So we don't take one verse, rip it out of context, and build a whole ministry based on that. We use the Bible to teach the Bible. So how about that one guy that the Bible's all about, the Son of God? What's his name again? Oh, yeah, Jesus. He's probably important to understand what he thought about the book of Daniel, right? I'm glad you asked. I got a verse for you. Matthew 24, 15, Jesus says this. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. So if Jesus is writing a paper about what he thinks about the Bible and cites Daniel as crediting the book of Daniel in the Old Testament, I'm probably going to go with what that guy said, right? But let's chase it a little further. The author of the book of Hebrews writes Hebrews chapter 11, which is known as the Hall of Faith. And here's what he says. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Japheth, David, the son of David, and Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, and stopped the mouths of lions. 
Now, here's what I say about this. Yes, I do believe that there is poetry and that there is allegorical language in the Bible. But here's where I don't play around. I don't play around when the author of Hebrews says, oh, you're going through a triary file. You're going through stuff and you need your faith strengthened. Well, let me go back to historical characters that went through suffering and trial as well and anchor your life in their life. That's where I don't think God's playing around. He didn't make up an allegorical character to strengthen your faith. He's rooting it in real people who really suffered so that you can look back upon them as Romans chapter 15 says that for long ago these things were written to us for encouragement and endurance. But what's the purpose Why do we have it? Why did God include this in his word? Why? I think we can answer that by another question that's found in the scriptures. You see, the book of Psalms is filled with songs that the people of Israel sang. And there's one line that they sung that gives context that was written during this time. And it says this in Psalm 137. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land. It's beautiful poetry, isn't it? You see, because the people of God had a promise from God that you will be my people and I will bless the whole earth from you. But now they've been taken captive and they're slaves again in a foreign land. And they say, how are we going to sing this song? Let me put the cookies on the bottom shelf. They're asking, how can we live the way God's promised us to live now that we live in exile? Now that we're now slaves. So the book of Daniel, the primary purpose is learning how to live in exile. Because you see, we got to go all the way back to the beginning. Adam and Eve, our first parents, God creates them and says, be fruitful and multiply. That you're created in my image and likeness. And that goes well until about another chapter in the Bible. And we get Genesis 3. And we see that they would rather have been God than worship God. And we suffer the same problem today. We would rather be our own gods than submit to the creator of everything. So God says, okay, okay. And then Adam and Eve have their offspring. And isn't it interesting? The offspring of Adam and Eve after the fall is Cain and Abel. And we see that God's offspring is pure. And Adam and Eve's offspring produces a murderer, Cain, who kills his brother. Then not a few more chapters in, we get Noah, right? Remember Russell Crowe or that new movie or whatever, right? And God says, I'm going to start all over again. And that goes really good with Noah. He builds the ark, does the thing two by two, the whole deal. And then he gets slammed drunk after the ark lands. And God goes, goodness gracious, let me start over with this thing again. And then we see a pagan man worshiping in modern day Iraq, Abram. And God comes to Abram and says, you're not good. There's nothing in you that's good. I'm good, but I'm going to choose you to bless everyone and start over. And he enters into a covenant with Abram, changes his name to Abraham. And he says, through you, all the lineage, Israel will be born. And you won't even be able to number your descendants. They're going to be like the stars in the sky and the sand on the ocean. Abraham turns out to be a coward and a liar. Then Abraham has Isaac, and Isaac has Jacob. And and God's constantly trying. He's writing this story over and over, and he's using his people. But his people are so broken, and constantly he's saying, live a different way. Live a different way. And we see the people of God constantly having pressure because they're living in this land, and there's these other cultures, and there's these other kings who live this way. 
And God is constantly telling them, no, no, this is not the way. And then we see Moses, right? Remember Charlton Heston? He's in the Bible. That's pretty cool, right? And God rescues his people out of Egypt, out of slavery, gives them the Ten Commandments and says, live this way. And they, not even right after they've seen the Red Sea split, they ask Moses, can we go back to Egypt? Because this thing's hard. Moses says, back to slavery. And we see again and again. And we see David. Oh, it's going to go good with David, right? The man after God's own heart, the first original hipster. You know what I'm saying? The guy played the heart, but also like killed lions with his bare hands, so don't make fun of him. You know what I'm saying? God's like, this is going to be it. And David takes another man's wife, has that man killed, like Michael Corleone's stuff, man. It's supposed to be God's man. And David has Solomon. Solomon's going to be the wisest man that's ever lived. This is going to go great. Solomon's going to build the temple. And under Solomon's rule and reign, Israel splits to a northern kingdom and to a southern kingdom. Daniel is writing as one of the exiles that was taken captive from the northern kingdom. There's other prophets that are writing during this time, and they're in the southern kingdom. But what's interesting is, is after that, the people say, we, we have to be led. Because the people in the Bible are so different than us. Because the people in the Bible said, we need to vote to have a king to lead us. And that's where all of our hopes and dreams will go well. I know we're nothing like them at all. You know what I mean? You know. And then we get the book of Judges. And we see these people rise. And they're going to lead the people of God. They're going to lead the people of God. Samson, right? Strong, weak in character. And we have all of this happening. Why do I tell you this? Because, listen, Israel's story is our story. God revealing himself to them constantly and saying, I'm going to take you out of slavery and you're going to live differently. But they felt the pressure of the ruling cultures around them and they would constantly bow to everything other than God. And that's actually what Jesus' charge was for us as his followers, that we would be distinct, that we would live differently than the rest of the world, that the rest of the world would look at this gang of misfits called Christians, called the church, and through that, they would show the very glory of God. But Jesus said that it would be difficult. Jesus said things about the world and about the culture. This is what Jesus says in John 17 when he's praying for us. He says, I've given them your word. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world. Just as I am not of the world, I do not, this is huge. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. This is what makes Christianity difficult, is that we are in the world, but we are not of the world. That we live every day. This is called the grind. Hashtag the struggle is real, bro. You know what I'm saying? It's hard and it's difficult. And I'm in this thing, but I'm not of this thing. And I've got pressure constantly. So how do we go from just surviving in this culture that is far removed from God to thriving in this? Well, maybe this will be helpful. This is a picture of me and some of my family members. 
I'm the tall, bald-headed, lanky guy right there on the right, okay? That's uh, my Uncle Don and Cousin Wes, and the guy on the far left, the other bald-headed guy is my brother Joe. The, the, the head must be hereditary. I don't know. You know what I mean? But here's what's cool about this. All of us, apart from Joe, like I graduated high school in Columbia, Missouri, went to college in Columbia, did so well. They asked me not to come back for a little bit, still waiting for them to have me come back. But anyway, so we all love Columbia, right? But here's something about Joe. Joe's lived in Jonesboro for like 15 years. He got like, like had his first kid there. He's worked there forever. Like Joe's got ties in Jonesboro. So when we're getting ready to go to the game, this picture was taken right before the Mizzou-Arkansas game. We're getting ready to go to the game. Joe walks out of his bedroom wearing a Mizzou shirt. And we're like, what are you doing, bro? You're Jonesboro Joe, man. You're like, like you should be the mayor of Jonesboro. You lived here forever, man. What are you talking about? He's like, well, I mean, I'm going to the game with you guys, right? You got to know something about my brother Joe. He's the one we always make fun of. He's the one who cried a lot and stuff like that. But don't tell him I said that, okay? All right? He'd probably still beat me up. But anyway, and we're like, Joe, come on, man. Like, rep, rep Arkansas, ASU, man. You got friends here. And he's like, no, nah, man, I'm going to wear it. It's cool. <laughs> Listen, we get to the football game, and Joe bumps into everybody that he knows. <laughs> and everybody that he knows is going, Joe, what are you doing, man? Take that shirt off, bro. Don't rep Mizzou. Take that shirt off, man. Represent Arkansas. And Joe works in the, in the medical field there. He bumped into some of the doctors that he works for, and some of the doctors were like, well, Joe, we're just going to have to uh, renegotiate our contract with you, I guess. Didn't know that you were a Mizzou fan. Why do I tell you that? Listen, that's a fun way to tell you this. You feel that pressure every day of your life if you're following Christ. Take that jersey off, man. You repping Jesus, take that thing off. Man, listen, this is the workplace, bro. You don't need to rep Jesus here. I understand your marriage. You're going to a mystery of marriage conference, blah, blah, blah. You're working on your marriage. Awesome. Just don't bring that around me, man, okay? Don't do any of this stuff. Take that thing off. Compromise that. And that's something that we feel every single day. Why? Because theologians call it Christendom. Christendom. It's the theological statement for the golden era of Christianity. So, in the 20s, 30s, 40s, and 50s, if you were a Western American, it did you socially well to associate as a Christian or a mainline denomination. So, in the 20s, 30s, 40s, and 50s, if you moved towns, one of the first things that you did was to join a local church especially if you were a prominent member of the community. Because if you went out to dinner, the first question that they would ask you is, well, where are you a member of? And it did you well to be a business owner, so much so that it bled into politics. Uh Uh-oh, we're talking about politics in church today, right? And this is when you see political people running on their campaigns. That's why John F. Kennedy was so so shocking because he was the first Catholic president. That was a big deal. Why? This is the golden era of Christianity, and it does you well. Um, newsflash, bro, it's 2018. How's, how's it going for you to rep Jesus Christ? Are you making a lot of friends doing that, right? You're climbing up the, the, the job ladder, you know, loving and, loving and serving Jesus? No. Why? Because, listen, Christendom is dead. And do you know what I say? Let it die. Let it die. Put two in the head and drag that sucker out to the road, bro. Why? Because it was never supposed to be that way. If there's one thing that Jesus promised us, it's that we would be marginalized, we would be hated, and we would be persecuted. And if you ever want the church to thrive, 
persecute it and drop it into a poverty-stricken area and you will see Christianity explode. That's why theologians and scholars say that there will be more Christians in China than there are Americans in the U.S. Why? Because there's persecution there. And here's what worries me, is there's not just pressure to take off the jersey for Jesus from the culture, but we also have Christians compromising that and bowing down. There was a recent survey done through Berkeley University. This was asked to people who claimed to be, quote, evangelical Christians. So this was asked to people who go to church. It was this question. Do you believe the Bible to be God's true word? Jesus to be the son of God who died and resurrected? That every person needs to have a born-again experience And do you believe that Christians should practice their beliefs outwardly? 8% of the people said yes to that sentence. 8%. And you wonder why we're floundering and taking off our jersey left and right, and you're wondering where everything's going. Berkeley University has been tracking the rise of uh, religious affiliation since the 1930s. And they say that a religious affiliation is as low as it's ever been right now. Now, listen, I understand some people don't want to associate with evangelicalism and some things like that because there's some political things that are taking place. I understand that. But listen, bro, I'm not compromising the tenets of the faith. I'm not compromising what the martyrs died for, like God's word and Christ being resurrected and Jesus being the only way to God. We're not compromising those things. I'm not taking off that jersey, man. So how do we do it? When we turn on the news and we see a culture that is so broken and so far removed, how do we learn to live in exile? Each week, we are going to learn from Daniel how to do that. We're going to learn a truth that is a bedrock for our faith. And today what we learn when we look at these first two verses is this. The only way to stand in a culture that's fallen is to stand on the truth that God is sovereign. That's it. That's where you got to start. Because that's where the writer of Daniel starts. Daniel starts in the first two verses. Now we're in the book. Did you see what we had to do? I'm sorry that we had to study the Bible today in church, okay? All right? Now we're in the first two verses. Look at it. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king, aren't you fortunate that your parents didn't name you that? Can we just praise God for that? All right, anyway, sorry, that was a rabbit trail. Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, right? Can we have fun with the Bible real quick? Can we do that? Like sometimes we like to add sound effects just like I read the story to my kids. When I read Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, can you go dun, dun, dun? Can you do that? All right, we're gonna go veggie tales right now, okay? Daniel 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Awesome, fantastic. I'm not going to preach angry. Good job. Came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Do you see in the first verse we have two kings, two kingdoms already? That's why we have a throne up on the stage. This is epic, man. This is big stuff. We have two kings. We have two kingdoms. We have the people of God who have the promise of God, who serve God, the God that created everything, and now they're being besieged. And then verse 2 happens. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. He brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. I'm preaching my entire sermon on four words found in verse 2. And the Lord gave. And the Lord gave. So did King Nebuchadnezzar do it? Yeah, sure. God used him. 
But there is a hand that is moving behind this epic story that is actually writing this. So what we have to understand is, yes, everything is breaking loose. Yes, everything is happening. And the Lord gave. Daniel is letting us know that there is something happening that's going to forever change the people of God. But it's not happening apart from the control of God. From the hand of God. And the only way that Daniel and his people can stand and live for God in a culture that is fallen is to stand on the fact that God is sovereign. So what did the Lord give them? The first thing is this. The Lord gave them a reminder that he's in control. That's what sovereignty means. The ultimate control of God. And the Lord gave, because look in verse 2. It's kind of repetitive, isn't it, about the whole vessels thing? Like, what's that about? Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels, again, in the treasury of his God. What, what's the deal? Well, if, if I could do it in modern day, this is the only way that would be the equivalent to that. Is if I said, North Korea has just bombed the White House and burned the Declaration of Independence. That's the type of effect that Daniel is writing in this. So I'm going to read it again, and I want you to gasp. <gasps> okay, right, when I read it, can you do that again? Right, you're in the sermon now. Here we go. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into the hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. This is everything, man. This is everything that represented the people of God. Right? In the holy of holies, this man comes in, sets fire to the place, besieged it. All of these things that God gave his people as physical elements of representation that you were my people, right? All of these holy things, this king comes and he just snatches it. And what that's telling the people of God is, is God really God? These are the holy things. What Daniel is saying is, nah, God actually let him do that. Because here's something you need to understand. God has never said, "Uh uh-oh. He's just never said it. God's never, like, when this was happening, God was not in heaven like, oh my goodness, look at what Babylon's doing. I, j- I had no idea that. Holy Spirit, Christ, come on, what is going on right here? I had no idea this was. God doesn't drive an ambulance, bro. God's not going around going, I just had no, hey, listen, sorry, but that, you know, that tragedy that happened in your life, I didn't see it coming. That's why I didn't really prepare you for that. That's not what's happening. He's letting them know God's still in control. Because actually 200 years before this happened, you see, Israel was wiling out, right? It was like Israelites gone wild. You know what I'm saying? They were not following God. God kept saying, listen, 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 listen. I love you. I love you. I love you. Those things will hurt you. Because when God says don't, as one preacher says, he means don't hurt yourself. Okay, kids, look up here. When God says sex outside of marriage isn't good, it's because what he's saying is that's like playing with fire and you're going to get burned, Okay. So it's just like a loving parent. It's not a bad command. It's a good command. And Israel didn't want to hear that. And so what he says to the prophet Isaiah, listen to this, 200 years before this happens. The time will surely come when everything in your palace and all that your predecessors have stored up until this day will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. And some of your descendants, your own flesh and blood, who will be born to you, will be taken away, and they will become eunuchs. If you want to know what a eunuch is, Pastor Tyler will be out front, and he'll tell you what that is after church. In the palace of the king of Babylon. God knew this was happening. God's hands behind all of this. Here's what I'm trying to tell you. Listen, have you ever been that way? Chaos, everything changed. It's like a phone call. 
One, a text message, man. Isn't it crazy that we think we're so in control of our lives that we've got everything laid out in order and the doctor calls. One domino falls and all of the dominoes fall. And you think there is no way that there's anything in light of this that is going to be good for me. What Daniel is telling us is this, is God's even in control of the chaos. You want to test the sovereignty of God? He's controlling nations to bring about his plan. He gave them a reminder that he's still in control. And he's also giving you that reminder today, right now, through his word. The second thing, God gave them a reason not to give up. Not to give up. He's taking them into Babylon. The land of Shinars is synonymous with Babylon there. And did you know, like, there's another prophet writing during this time? Jeremiah, right? And Jeremiah is writing from the southern tribes. And he's writing to the people that are going into exile. And there's that one verse that he writes. I've never read it on a coffee cup or seen it on a sweatshirt or on a bumper sticker before. It's that one, Jeremiah 29, 11, something about the plan. What's that one? That one? Oh, yeah, the plans I have for you to click. Do you know what that's actually written to, what the context is? God's like, hey, you guys were wiling out so much, I just raised up a pagan nation to come snatch y'all up into exile. But it's cool. i got a plan for you, declares the Lord. Changes the meaning of the verse a little bit, doesn't it? Sorry, ladies, it's not about your future husband in your marriage, all right? It's hard to crush you, right? But it still may work about that. I don't know, okay? But check out what God says in verse 7. He says in Jeremiah 29, 7, But seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile, where I've sent you into exile. Sovereignty, sovereignty, cha-ching, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. So here's one of the things we're going to learn in the book of Daniel. I'm not a picket sign guy. I'm not an enemy of the culture. You know why? You know why our stage looks super dope this morning? Is because we're competing with the Avengers and movies and all of that type of stuff. And if we really believe the word of God, we're going to put forth effort for the word of God. And do you know why I know God doesn't hate culture? Because he entered into it and the word became flesh and he dwelt among us. So we infiltrate the culture, man. I want people sitting in political positions. I want people sitting on city council. I want people being school teachers. I want people working at banks. I want stay-at-home moms because I want to infiltrate the culture. Man, that's what Daniel does, and what God's word teaches us is that when we do that, that's honoring God. Oh, there's things we don't bow for, and we're gonna learn about that. We don't bow for some things, bro. We don't bow, but we enter in the culture on those things. But you know, the whole context that this is about it's about Israel's failure. (laughs) They're going into slavery, this is a sign of God's judgment over their life. And God still has a plan in their failure. How big, how big is God's grace? Maybe I can illustrate it this way. Um, my, my wife is, is a certified hoarder. I'm just going to go ahead and confess that. It's okay, right? It's okay. It's all right. It's all right. This is gonna, there's going to be a good thing about this in the end. And so I'm the type that's like, I go through these purging moments in my house. I don't know if any, I'll, I'll throw away baby pictures, bro, right? Throw it all away, man. Get the dumpster, beep, beep, back that thing up. And let's just throw all of this stuff away. But here's what's crazy. I also have to confess this. She's always, I'm like trying to throw stuff away, like even delete stuff on the DVR, like all those Christmas Hallmark movies. Come on, ladies. If you've seen one, you've seen every single one of them, okay? He makes it in time for Christmas every single time. He walks in the door right when they're opening up presents. He made it. I had no idea. Every single one he makes it. Every single one of them, right? He's got the puppy, the whole thing. He makes it every time. But here's what she always says when I'm trying to throw this away. Ah, 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 don't, don't delete that. Don't throw that. I'm using that. I'm using that. And listen. 
lo and behold, we'll go eat yogurt or do something like that. And she'll be like, guess how much our yogurt was tonight? And I'm like, how much? He's like, nothing, because that coupon you wanted to throw away, I used it tonight. And I'm like, oh, my goodness. Everything I want to throw away, she uses, and it's to my benefit. All the stuff that you've wanted to get rid of in your life, the divorce, the bankruptcy, the addiction, the family conflict. God, I want to throw this away. I want to get rid of this. God's saying, "Uh -uh, uh uh-uh, uh-uh. I'm going to use that. I'm going to use that because, listen, in Christ, failure does not define you. It refines you. It's the whole point. That's the whole story of Israel. And it's our story as well. That we fail constantly and God is so in control that he uses the failure for his glory. The Lord gave them a reminder that he's in control. A reason not to give up. And then the last, a rescuer that would save them. The Lord gave them a rescuer that would save them. Now we learn about this King Jehoiakim guy there in the first verse. We also learn about him in 2 Chronicles as well. And it doesn't look good for him as being encapsulated forever in all of God's word like this. It says, Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord his God. You see, because the people of Israel constantly said, give us a savior. Give us somebody that will lead us. This is too hard for us. Give us somebody that will fight our battles, that will kill the Philistine giant, that will go in and defend us. Give us somebody that can rescue us. And we're so different today. Because God, give me a spouse that will define me. God, give me children that will honor me. God, give me a job that will define me. God, give me a Savior that will save me. And what I love about the Bible is, do you know there's one hero? And it's not Daniel. Daniel's not the hero of the book of Daniel, but Daniel points to something greater. Oh, please listen, this is the whole message. Because there would be a king that would come and he would lay and besiege the Roman Empire. And this king would have a kingdom. And against that kingdom, the gates of hell would not prevail against that. And in the sovereign hand of God, the Lord would give again in the book of John. John chapter 3 verse 16. And the Lord gave... His only son, that that whoever should believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. See, Daniel, oh, Daniel points us to the greater king and the greater kingdom and how to live in our culture in the here and in the now. And in God's sovereignty, he was working it all. He was working it from Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. He was working the story that would come out for his glory. So listen, you've got to, I don't know what you came in with today, right? But I got problems, right? It's 2018 and it's hard and the struggle is real and the grind is difficult and bearing the name of Christ is tough. And if you're one of these people that are like, man, Jason, I don't know what the problem is. It just seems to be really easy. I'm not struggling. You're not even in the game, bro. You're not even in the game. So what do I need to know first and foremost? I need to know that God is sovereign and that his hand is guiding all of this. Oh, we can't see it, but we don't look to what is seen, the writer of Hebrews says. We trust in his word. 
So how do we stand in a culture that's fallen? We stand on the truth that God is sovereign. As the band comes up and leads us in a time of response, I've got a few questions that I want you to have in your heart while we look at this series. The first one is this, what I alluded to. Do I feel the tension of following Christ in a broken world? Do you? Do you feel the tension when you file your taxes and there's that loophole of that thing? It's just a little bit unethical, but it's not that big of a deal and nobody really knows. Do you feel the tension when you go in the voting booth? Do you feel the tension when your kid brings home an album? Or do you feel the tension when you and your wife are making a decision as to what you should do with your children? Do you feel the tension? Because if you don't feel the tension, you're not in the game. Because we live by a different standard. We are defined by grace. We are not defined by efforts. And it is difficult in this world. Do you feel that? You're going to feel it good, good if you feel it. That's because you're in the game and you're not swapping jerseys. The second thing is this. Where is my hope in this broken world? Because, oh, here's my fear. Here's why we're in this series. Here's what I see Christians doing. Christians People who bear the name of Christ. I see Christians secluding from the culture, putting all their trust in their 401ks and their retirements. And they're just telling their spouses, oh, it'll be fine when the kids graduate and we move and then we get the lake house by the place and then we'll retire and then we'll give up. What? We're in the game on this thing. You got grandbabies. You've got, you're a member of the body of Christ. Where is your hope in this? Because when we put our hope in broken things, the only thing we get are more broken things. And did you know that you can actually tour the ruins of Babylon? You can pay 20 bucks to go look at one of the greatest empires that ruled the world, and they are in ruins, man. Ruins. And today in this place, we do not hail King Nebuchadnezzar. We do not hail Caesar as Lord. But all oh, listen to me. You can get on a plane and you can fly across the pond and you can pay some money and go tour the Holy Lands and they'll take you to a place in some gardens and there will be a sign that says this is where we think the body of Christ was laid. And they're not 100% sure because his body's not in there. Because three days later, he rose from the grave. And 2,000 years later, I'm preaching out of a book that's inerrant and it's inspired by by the word of God and we hail the name of Christ today that's where your only hope is and if you put it anywhere else you will be broken and so the last question is this am I trusting in myself or am I trusting in Christ and I can answer it for you are you exhausted because if you're exhausted then it depends on you I'm not talking about tired of being in a game right I'm talking about tired because you feel like you're constantly failing. And if you feel like that, you think your efforts define you. And they don't. Because it doesn't define us, it refines us in Christ. So how do we stand, Westside? How are we going to be a different people in Popper Bluff? And how do we change Butler County? And how do we change the public schools? And how do we change the offices? And how do we run our businesses now? And from Butler County, oh, if God's sovereign and His hand could do it, we could change the world from Butler County. I believe it all west side. I see it and I feel it in my bones. And what we need to know is that we can only stand in what's fallen on the truth that God is sovereign. Heavenly Father, we come before you today. Challenge us, mold us, convict us where we need convicting, comfort us where we need comforting. May we recognize that the story of Daniel and the people of Israel is our story. But you've sent us a greater king. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Your hand is in control of it all. God, I pray for marriages. I pray for finances. I pray for children. I pray for sickness. I pray for whatever that we could see the hand of God in everything. We pray all of these mighty and precious promises in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Would you stand right where you're at and come and partake in communion as you feel led today?